Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. In 1831, an abolitionist tried to open a black college in New Haven. It could have been the nation's first, but white New Haven residents overwhelmingly voted the idea down, and violence erupted on the green in the days and months after that vote. Efforts in other states to offer higher education to black residents had also been squashed, sometimes violently. Atlantic staff writer Adam Harris details these efforts in his new book, The State Must Provide, Why America's Colleges Have Always Been Unequal and How to Set Them Right. Today, segregation has been legally abolished, but why does the experience of black students in higher education continue to differ from their white peers? We'll talk about that and hear from Connecticut higher education official Jane Gates. She's provost and senior vice president of academic and student affairs for the Connecticut State Colleges and Universities System. And you can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Author Adam Harris joins us now on Zoom. Adam, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I understand it's about a month since your book has been published. Congratulations. And I guess to start off, uh, tell us what made you write this book about your personal experience at an HBCU. Yeah, so I went to Alabama A&M University in Huntsville, Alabama. And, um, you know, it was sort of a family institution, right? My sister was on campus playing volleyball at the time. My mom went there for undergrad in the 80s. My uncle was a drum major there. Um, and so we, I really sort of had this, this family tie to the institution. But once I attended, um, it became my, my own home. And so, um, you know, after, you know, I started at AM, you know, that first couple of weeks goes by and you start to get a little bit antsy, your homework starts to pile up a little bit. And there's a university right down the road, the University of Alabama at Huntsville, um, which is open, um, you know, about three hours, the library is open three hours longer than the um, library at Alabama A&M. So I figured I'd go over and, and, you know, at least get a little bit of extra studying done. And as I drive onto campus, you know, it's a predominantly white institution. You know, I, I saw a couple of differences between that campus and my own. You know, it had newer buildings um, or at least renovated buildings. Um, you know, they had these sort of lush, um, the, the lush green spaces and the, the fountains that sort of burst forth. Um, and as I started digging a little bit, I noticed that they also had a larger endowment than my own institution, even though they had been open for, for 75 fewer years um, than, than Alabama A&M. And so it, it really started to, to generate some of these questions about why there was so much of a, a resource difference between that institution and the one that educated my family. And as I got into covering higher education, I saw that my experience wasn't you know, an anomaly, but more so um, the norm for, for students attending historically Black colleges. Uh, when you made that observation as a student, did you talk about that with your family, as you mentioned, also HBCU alum? You know, I, I actually sort of kept it to myself for a little bit. I, I, there was a piece of me that 
thought, you know, maybe I'm just being a melodramatic student. Maybe, you know, it's, it, maybe this isn't as bad as, as I'm, I'm picturing it. Um, but, you know, and I would have some conversations with, with my family and be like, hey, you know, it's, it's interesting. It feels like this dorm hasn't been renovated in a long time. Um, and, and we know that that's going on, but we don't necessarily know the why. And so this book was really an exploration of, of why that, that was happening, why there was so much deferred maintenance. Um, and, and it really traces back to this sort of legacy of, of underfunding and discrimination. Uh, your, your book does a, a great job detailing uh, the history of higher education in this country. And you spend a lot of time talking about Berea College in Kentucky, which uh, could have been a model. Uh, but then we know what happened uh, with segregationist laws, uh, with fights against integration. But tell us a little bit about Berea College and, and uh, the interesting uh, people uh, that were involved with this ideal, this uh, idea of having an integrated college uh, in Kentucky. Yeah, absolutely. So Berea, as you mentioned, is, is founded um, by a Presbyterian minister, former Presbyterian minister who who left the church in part because of its affiliation um, and, and failure to renounce slavery. Um, so John Fee um, founds this college in the middle of the 1850s in Kentucky, kind of based on, on you know, biblical teachings, right? Um, coming from the book of Acts, God is made of one blood, all the people of the earth. And so he said that he would make an integrated co-educational college where students could learn, live, and work together. Um, and, and, you know, as, almost as soon as his institution is established, he's run out of town by enslavers. Um, and and he, he comes back after the Civil War, right? Even, even the sort of outright attacks and violence couldn't keep him from this mission of creating this institution, which at its root had this idea of equality. Um, and, and so for, you know, roughly 50 years from, from the end of the Civil War to the, the late 1800s, early 1900s, Berea sort of stands as a beacon. It becomes a 50-50 institution where half of the students are white, half of the students are black. And it's a rather successful model um, as the only, one of the only integrated co-educational colleges in the South. Um, and it's only broken apart, that, that mission that, that sustained, um, you know, uh, the so-called redeemers and the, the quote-unquote white revolution that, that, that survived um, violent attacks before the Civil War. It was only broken apart by intentional state action. Um, and that came in the form of the day law, which... Um, um, as you mentioned, the states were passing laws that, that fundamentally segregated education in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and the day law was Kentucky's version of that. And it was aimed at only one institution, the only integrated institution in the state, and that was Berea College. It might be surprising to our listeners to hear that this college was had a 50-50 split, as you mentioned, uh, in the early 1900s. Uh, but you also spend time detailing uh, the, the fights uh, for integration in other states. And, and there's a particular story that really, I think, uh, touches all the emotions, and that's of a man by the name of Lloyd Gaines. Uh, mm -hmm. This was, uh, of course, uh, several years uh, after uh, Berea was founded, or a few decades. But tell us, tell us about him and what happened. Yeah, so so Lloyd Gaines was born in Water Valley, Mississippi, um, and his family, you know, moved up to to Missouri when he was in his teens. And, you know, after attending high school, attending the historically black college for undergrad, he wanted to become a lawyer. 
Um, and he thought that the best way that he could, you know, practice law in Missouri, learn the law in Missouri, would be to attend a law school in Missouri. And so he ultimately ends up attending uh, or, 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 you know, trying to apply to the University of Missouri's um, School of Law because, um, you know, it's the only law school in the state. They didn't have a law school for black students. And he's rejected because he's black. Um the NAACP ends up taking up his case. And, you know, for for several years, it's, it's sort of working its way through the courts until they get to a point where they say, you know, Missouri, if, if you want to traffic in this idea of separate but equal, this idea that was, you know, really enshrined into, into law and, and upheld by the Supreme Court and Plessy v. Ferguson, then you at least need to have a separate option for Black students. States that often, you know, sent Black students out of state uh, for graduate education to some of the Northern institutions that that would enroll them. Um, but, but you know, to, to have separate but equal, you at least need to have a separate. Um, and, and the real tragedy of Lloyd Gaines' story, you know, the NAACP kept pushing, um, uh, you know, he kept, you know, kept fighting to, to enroll at the University of Missouri because there's no way that an institution that would be sprouted up in, you know, a couple of weeks could be equal to this, this institution that had been there for, for decades at that point. And, um, you know, the tragedy of his story and what his story really exemplifies is how these fights were, were so, even though they were for this broader struggle, they were so intensely personal fights, right? It's, he never ultimately ends up get, getting a chance to step foot on the University of Missouri's campus because he goes, he goes missing. And, and before he does, he, he sends a letter to his mom and says, you know, I'm, I'm just a man, not a man who's, who's fought and given his life for, for this cause, but, but just a man. And it really, it, it speaks to how much personal struggle um, the people who, whose names are attached to these fights were, were dealing with. You know, throughout his struggle, there were other uh, instances of of men being lynched uh, in Missouri around that time. And so at this point in time, no one knows what happened to Lloyd Gaines. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think I often think about, you know, the apparatus around them. Right. So my, my grandfather was born in 1931 um, and seven months before he was born, um, you know, three people were lynched over the Fourth of July weekend in his county. And this is this is, you know, a couple of years before Lloyd Gaines is, is taking on this fight to integrate higher education. And so, you know, the, you have to think about how intensely personal, but also, you know, the violence that, that broadly surrounded these conversations that, you know, for for the people who, who took part in this fight, it, it took a lot of, of bravery and, and personal sacrifice. Um, and I think that that should not be forgotten. You're hearing Adam Harris here on Where We Live. He's a longtime higher education reporter. He's staff writer with The Atlantic, and he's the author of the new book, The State Must Provide, Why America's Colleges Have Always Been Unequal and How to Set Them Right. Adam, you talk about the personal toll that it took on individuals. All they wanted was an education, and they became the name, the face to the struggle, and they dealt with a lot of challenges, with violence, uh, with uh, um, hits to the reputation, uh, where they didn't feel like they had dignity at times. There's also another student, uh, Ada. Can you tell us about her? Yeah, so so Ada Louise Sipple, um, ultimately Ada Louise Sipple Fisher, um, similarly to Lloyd Gaines, right? She wanted to attend law school. And I think that's that's also one of the things that really strikes me is that you know, these students didn't want things that were too different than what 
you know, students nowadays want. She just wanted to attend law school. And, and so a decade after um, the Supreme Court decides and the, the Gaines case that Missouri needs to create a separate option, um, the state of Oklahoma still has not created a separate option for law school for Black students. And so um, the NAACP, again, takes up her case um, and it works its way through the courts, gets up to the Supreme Court. And they say, hey, you know, Oklahoma, we made this decision a, a decade ago. Um, you need to abide by the law and create a separate option. And so um, Oklahoma does so, and they create a law school for Ada Louise Sipple Fisher, and they rush it into existence in five days from the Supreme Court's decision to the beginning of the semester. And she ultimately doesn't doesn't enroll in that institution because, you know, you're you're trying to say that an institution that you you set up on the third floor of the Capitol building and hired three faculty members um, for part time work for what would be a full time job um, and, and created a curriculum in five days. And that's equal and equitable to the institution. Um, the University of Oklahoma uh, that, that had been open for 50 years. And, and so, you know, her story, this, this takes roughly five years from when she's first applying um, to, to her actually being able to enroll at the University of Oklahoma's law school. But it really shows the lengths that states would go to, to, to block education, right? After Black students ultimately did end up enrolling at the University of Oklahoma, you would have... Um, they segregated them out into effectively the hallway, right? Thur Thurgood Marshall has a line where he says that man is peeking in when George McLaurin is ultimately enrolled at, at University of Oklahoma. And, and finally, you know, once the Supreme Court says you can't do that, they put a literal rail up in the classroom to segregate students. So it really just, it shows the granularity and the, 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 the levels that states went to to preserve that idea of segregation. We know that there were changes in laws after uh, several court challenges, but you also highlight that about the separate but equal lie uh, that uh, persisted. I mean, maybe people think about Oberlin as another example of integrated uh, higher education, but what was the real story there? Yeah, so so you know the the lie of separate but equal. One is that oftentimes states wouldn't have have even separate, but but you know when they did have separate, it wasn't fundamentally fundamentally equal. And and you know thinking about um, a place like Oberlin, a place with roots, you know. Pretty similar to Berea, they they you know trafficked in interracial education before the Civil War, um, but but by the late 1890s, as this um, you know interest, the philanthropic interest, the religious interest in black education began to wane. Um, so too did the sort of zeal for that interracial education at places like Oberlin. So you have instances where, where white students are refusing to sit with black students in the cafeteria. They're refusing to live with black students in um, the, the dormitories uh, and, and preferring to, to go off campus. Some students are leaving the university because it's integrated. Um, and so you really see in the late, 18, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, this sort of um, the the verve around interracial education beginning to to decline, and you have a, another intense period of highly segregated colleges. Um, and, and thinking through separate but equal, oftentimes lawmakers and states would say, you know, I would spare no expense to educate black students and ensure that that education is equal. But you see several times over all of the ways that that was not true. So thinking about a place like Kentucky that brought down a professor to, uh, from an HBCU to survey their black college and say, you know, what would it take to bring us up to the standards of Tuskegee? And, you know, he says that your, your girl's dorm is fire prone, it lacks fire escapes, your boy's dorm is in a mud puddle, your electrical plant doesn't have power, your buildings are old, your professors are underpaid, um, and it would take a lot of money to fix 
fix this. And and this is in the early 1900s. And, and the state says, well, we have $40,000, fix it with that. Um, and so, you know, states have been trying to get a bargain on, um, on, on increasing these these educational facilities, on, on propping these institutions up and um, and making them equal to the predominantly white institutions which are being showered with fundings. And that's really the, the sort of lie of separate but equal. When we talk about racism in higher education and the legacy of racism that you uh, document in your book, Adam, I mean, let's uh, be pretty blunt. Like it wasn't just uh, how uh, states didn't want to see uh, interracial education. Uh, they didn't want to put resources uh, towards uh, helping uh, black students also get an education, but also steeped in this fear of interracial dating and marriage. Yes, yes. Um, and that's something that comes up time and time again. Um, you know, from the from the 1870s, where professors are saying that, you know, uh, you know, we don't want this to lead to miscegenation, we don't want it to lead to, you know, interracial marriage, interracial dating, because that would be the obliteration of the race, uh, race structure as we as we understand it, and an obliteration of the white race. So that that fear of um, interracial dating and interracial marriage was was massive. Um, and, and the opposition to um, integration and and if you think about you know in the 1950s the, what actually broke the you know broke the levy in terms of getting um, black students into the University of Oklahoma it was George McLaurin and and one of the things that Thurgood Marshall would often say about McLaurin is you know he was he was older um, and he had been married for for you know something like a couple of decades and and there wasn't the fear that um, you know he would be trying to um, date coeds on on campus um, and so you know that fear of interracial marriage was was huge in terms of um, uh, you know people trying to maintain and preserve that that segregated space. Mm. So in your book, you talk about how states intentionally created this unequal system. There were court decisions that pretty much gave states and these institutions cover to discriminate, especially in higher ed. So let's take it to the present day. Uh, when we look at uh, here in Connecticut, um, producer Sujata Srinivasan looked at some numbers. About 8% of students enrolled at Yale are black. At UConn, the incoming class, 10% uh, are African-American. At the University of Hartford, another private institution, about 15% of the incoming class of 2021 are black students. But in your book, you argue it's more than just increasing enrollment, but also the, uh, the disinvestment uh, in uh, black colleges, historically black uh, uh, colleges and universities. Can you talk about that? Yeah. And, and uh, you know, one of the other things that I often talk about is sort of the resource stratification that's happening where, where you know, the propulsion uh, or the, the momentum that, that segregated higher education had and inequitable higher education had um, has, a, has an effect where Black students are more likely to in, attend institutions with fewer resources. So, you know, um, whereas, you know, 8% of black students are attending Yale, 10% of black students are attending UConn, if you look at the community colleges, which may have fewer resources, you will typically see a higher percentage of black students in those institutions. And, you know, in a place like Oklahoma, which, you know, led the way in terms of higher education integration, you know, there are almost more black students at Langston University, 1,450 black students at this institution of fewer than 2,000 students than there are at the University of Oklahoma and Oklahoma State University combined. And this is, these are institutions with, you know, 40,000 students, upwards of 40,000 students together. And so, you know, thinking about that, that sort of stratification, the fund stratification, um, uh, you know, a place like North Carolina, where you know, 22% of uh, 
Black students attending public colleges in the state do so at one of the 12 PWIs, 25% do so at one of the five uh, public HBCUs, and uh, 52% do so on at the, um, you know, at the public community colleges. And so I think that one of the ways, to, you know, thinking about one, the institutions that are still being um, underfunded, the HBCUs that are still being underfunded, but also thinking about the ways that resource stratification is um, affecting the the you know, the wraparound services that, that Black students, Brown students um, are able to um, receive at, at some of these institutions. When we think about endowments, uh, just a fraction of what uh, you may find at a predominantly white institution, Adam. Uh, recently, Bennett College, I believe, in North Carolina was fighting to keep its accreditation. Uh, tell us about the challenges that it found itself in and, and how when we think about this legacy of disinvestment, you know, how it impacts these schools. Yeah, Bennett, Bennett was um, a couple of years ago, Bennett was forced by its accreditor to prove its financial viability, to prove that it would be able to have you know, sustainable resources into the future. And so they launched a drive um, to raise $5 million over 50 days to show that they had the capacity to, to raise funds. Um, and so, you know, over the next 50 days, they, they go through a lot of, um, you know, they go through this big push, it becomes sort of a national story. Um, and it, it's, you know, they ultimately end up reaching their goal. But you know, underneath all of that is the is the truth that you know more than a dozen institutions received single donations of five million dollars over that period of time, um, and so there's there's always been this sort of gap in, in philanthropic giving, and you know last year. Um, 2020 was a record year of giving um, by by any measure for HBCUs, um, where a lot of them received their largest ever single donation. Um, you know, whether that was five million dollars or forty million dollars, um, but you know it doesn't it doesn't negate that you know in those years prior those sorts of philanthropic donations were not happening for these institutions, and so it would take a sustained period of philanthropic giving in order to. Um, in order to build those endowment reserves that other institutions have been able to, right? My own institution, Alabama A&M, just a couple of weeks ago received its largest ever donation. That was $2.2 million, right? And this institution has been around for over, you know, roughly 150 years or close to 150 years. So I, I think that, you know, we should really think about and we're thinking about endowments and thinking about growth. If it, if it does with deals with philanthropic giving, it has to be sort of sustained philanthropic giving and sort of one-time injections of funds aren't going to make the, the sort of transformational difference that they might, unless they're, you know, massive injections of wealth, thinking Johns Hopkins level billion dollar um, single donations. You have some interesting ideas on how states can help correct these wrongs. We'll get into that coming up with Adam Harris, author of The State Must Provide, Why America's Colleges Have Always Been Unequal and How to Set Them Right. He'll stay with us, and coming up we'll hear from a Connecticut higher education official, too. What lessons can we learn from the legacy of racism on U.S. campuses? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. 
So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, longtime higher education reporter Adam Harris is my guest today. The Atlantic staff writer is the author of the new book, The State Must Provide, Why America's Colleges Have Always Been Unequal and How to Set Them Right. He traces the legacy of racism in higher education that continues to impact how black students experience education in a different way today from their white peers. Legal segregation has been long abolished, but why do these disparities persist? For another perspective, joining us now on Zoom is Jane Gates. She's provost and senior vice president of the academic and student affairs with the Connecticut State Colleges and Universities system. Jane, welcome to the show. Good morning, and thank you for inviting me. I understand you taught at an HBCU. So tell us about your experience when, and then your response to Adam's observations as a student at an HBCU. I did teach at an HBCU. My credentials in higher education come predominantly from predominantly white institutions. My experience at an HBCU was just transformative. Everything I saw there was counterintuitive to what I'd heard previously at the PWIs, where we look at ACT scores, SAT scores. I saw students enter uh, Savannah State University with perhaps lower scores than we would have accepted in four-year institutions, but those students were successful because we provided a high level of support, supplemental support, but I think most importantly, a culture of can-do and courage, just encouraging students and role modeling for those students. So I, I consider my years as a, a dean in the College of Liberal Arts and Social Sciences at an HBCU as one of the most transformative years ever in my higher education experience. It changed entirely my um, worldview of what we should be looking at in our students and what our students were capable of doing and the kinds of things we need to be very intentional about and putting in place to ensure that our students succeeded. Some did not complete in four years or five, but they were able to complete those degrees um, at the HBCU. The entire culture was very, very different. You mentioned being transformative, but did you see even at this HBCU that you taught at, uh, there was, uh, you know, when you compare it to, like you mentioned, predominantly white uh, institutions, uh, just uh, not the same uh, resources uh, to help the students there? Exactly. The resources were not comparable. The HBCU I uh, worked at there was underfunded. However, what I saw was just an enormous effort by faculty to secure national 
grants, external grants. While it was one of the most underfunded institutions, it was fifth in the number of grants it received federally within a system of 35 institutions. So we were able to bring in external resources, but not from the state, but from the federal government and many of the NSF and, and uh, types of grants that were available. Those dollars were then um, redirected to provide student support, uh, degree works, other kinds of things. The one thing that I shared in the interview previously was that my experience with the Regents exam while, while um, being a Dean uh, in the HBCU. The Regents exam was one where it was high stakes. If the student, a student could have completed all 120 credits for a degree, but not graduate unless they passed this Regents exam, which was just absolutely, once I looked into it, an exam that timed students as if we were in the industrial revolution and one where when I looked at the syntax that the construct of the exam was one where it disadvantaged students uh, living in like urban or predominantly minority communities because of the way these questions were, were written. So that was one of the first efforts I was asked to take on uh, in the HBCU uh, setting during the five, six years I was there. And I was very successful in moving that forward because there were kinds of things there. For example, if a student didn't take the exam once he or she had accrued X number of hours, the student was recorded as a failed. So you couldn't, you could not graduate uh, from the institution. Or I recognized that the questions themselves were normed. They were not criterion reference questions. So there, it only took one word and really bringing in experts, psychometric experts to look at the actual content of the exam demonstrated to me that there were major problems. It, clearly they were written in a way that disenfranchised uh, minority students. They, they simply, it, they were not related at all relevant to the experiences our students lived um, in, in so their Jane. communities. Thank you for sharing that with us. So let's bring it home to now that you, uh, you are, are a higher education official within the Connecticut uh, colleges and universities system. Let's talk about um, how these universities are reaching uh, people in our community, specifically uh, black students. So what's the breakdown of, of, at these colleges and universities? Well, we are becoming increasingly more, uh, increasing our students of color uh, in our institutions. We have, for example, uh, the percentage increase there from 2019, 2010 to 2019. We've increased from 13 to 16% uh, African-American students. Uh, the percentage of Latinx increased from 14 to 23%. And the increase among Asian-American students increased from 3 to 4%. So, uh, and meanwhile, what we've also seen is the percentage of white students decrease from 66 to 53%. So clearly the landscape of our institutions demographically has changed. When we think about so, um, representation on, on college campuses, what does that mean in terms of, of uh, your faculty, uh, Jane? Uh, unfortunately, that's one of the areas we continue to, to look at and focus 
we really have not done a great job in uh, increasing the uh, minority faculty uh, on our campuses. We have recently hired uh, a vice president for diversity, equity, and inclusion. We find uh, overall at our community colleges a 70% uh, white uh, faculty with 24% minority faculty, and that includes Black, Hispanic, and Asian. So we're really not at all mirroring our demographics. In our universities, we, the four universities there, we're about 68% white faculty with, again, 28% Black, Hispanic, and Asian. But we are doing lots of things to ensure that our students um, succeed, not just enroll, but that they succeed in the CSCU system. We're very much committed to uh, decreasing any inequities and increasing student success. We have so many initiatives uh, that we know will, in fact, improve student success. One of the things we've done also, uh, we've uh, included $167 million in federal funding to directly support students. That includes both direct payments to help students with the cost of attendance and forgiveness of debt in our community colleges that were owed to the institutions. We believe this will make a real difference. The other kinds of things, and I'm excited to share this, one of which I'm sure everyone in the community is aware of, the merger of the 12 colleges here, uh, known as CT State. Additionally, yeah, and, Jane, uh, Jane Gates, and Jane Gates, thank you. Uh, we, I know that we've done many shows about the, the merger uh, of uh, the Connecticut State Colleges and University System. I don't want to get too off track. Uh, I wanted to have uh, Adam Harris respond to what you shared about enrollment and, and diversity on campus. Adam, uh, you're, you've been writing this book, and in the meanwhile, we've seen uh, Black Lives Matter uh, become more front and center. Uh, we see uh, communities pushing back on, on their uh, what they think they understand as critical race theory or CRT. We're hearing uh, institutions and workplaces all trying to embrace the DEI initiatives. Uh, can you break it down for us uh, when we think about um, representation and, and how institutions should really be uh, embracing this and looking at it from a systemic way? Yeah, and I, I think you know some of the steps that, that Jane outlined um, are, are fantastic, right? But thinking about um, growing um, not only your student body, but also you know starting to think critically about how you increase representation on your faculty. Um, you know, she pointed back to to you know her time at teaching at an, at an HBCU and, and being in an HBCU and how you know the faculty and, and folks sort of provided that robust. Um, uh, robust support for students, even as they were being underfunded and having to, to use some of the, you know, some of those funds, you know, grants that they were pulling in from outside sources to help, um, you know, make up for that difference. And, and one point I would actually make on, on that point is, you know, um, oftentimes states will take that, you know, can-do attitude that a lot of HBCUs have and use it as a way to say that, oh, well, they're, they're doing fine with the amount that they have, when really, you know, that, that shouldn't negate the fact that they should be, you know, the state should be doing doing more to help the institutions. But but really, I, I think that as we think about representation, as we think about, you know, some of these initiatives, um, and I, I, I will say, you know, a lot of the, the diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives are really great, but, you know, there has to be on the 
on the back end of them, you know, it can't just be, okay, we've hired someone to the C-suite who is, you know, our diversity, equity, and inclusion officer, or we've, you know, we've done this training. I think that there has to be the, okay, what comes next? Is it, um, is it in hiring? Is it in, you know, increasing enrollments? Is it in reaching back into the communities that your institutions or that your business is in, um, in order to, to support the work of, of folks in, in the communities and, and lift up and prop up the communities? Um, but I think without that, that last step, that follow through, it's, um, you know, uh, it's, it's difficult to see, to see where things change. And, and one of the things I often point to is, is banks, right? So, you know, early on, right after the murder of, of George Floyd, a lot of banks, you know, launched new DEI programs, hired people to their C-suite to do diversity, equity, and inclusion. But then after the Biden administration said, okay, we have $4 billion for black farmers who have been um, discriminated against. And the, the banks had their lobbyists send an, a message to Congress and to the administration that said, actually, we would lose money if, if you guys um, were to, you know, give this, this sort of reparation payment to black farmers, knowing that, that they played a, banks played a vital role in that discrimination. So um, unless that, that, you know, DI work turns into action, um, you know, I think we end up in the same place, but, but as, you know, Jane laid out, right, that there are ways that, you know, increasing enrollment, thinking about, thinking critically about how to increase representation on the faculty are, are incredibly important. And, and that's the work that should be, should be done. We know uh, in the recession uh, that there was a lot of uh, financial challenges. And when we think about when states are hurting financially, lawmakers often cut higher education funding first. Uh, we've seen that here in Connecticut as well. But you write in your book, Adam, that when that happens, that primarily affects black and other students of color. Talk about that. Exactly. So, so that, that sort of resource stratification that I was talking about a little bit earlier, where, you know, black students are more likely to attend institutions with fewer resources. When states cut budgets, it doesn't, you know, affect the flagship institution in the same way that it affects the community colleges. If you're in a state with an HBCU, it doesn't affect, um, you know, if you're in Alabama, right, that, that budget cut isn't going to hit Alabama or, or Auburn University the same way it's going to hit Alabama A&M or, or Alabama State. Um, and so, you know, oftentimes lawmakers look to higher education as the place to cut because, you know, we've developed this understanding of higher education as a, as a private good rather than a public good, which it used to be seen as, right? The founders talked about, um, you know, George Washington literally in his first address before, before Congress said that there's no um, enterprise that could better deserve your funding than, um, than, than education and higher education because that, that was the place where um, he and several other founding fathers thought, you know, you know, that higher education was the place to build build good citizens and teach people the arts and the sciences, but also teach them um, about national character. And so, um, you know, I think if if we continue that cycle of you know states under or you know cutting funding from institutions as they're going through budget cuts, um, I, I think that it's only to the detriment of of black and brown students and students who are you know have been marginalized and minoritized in higher education historically. You're hearing Adam Harris, author of The State Must Provide Why America's Colleges Have Always Been Unequal and How to Set Them Right. He's a staff writer with The Atlantic. I want to thank Jane Gates for joining us, Provost and Senior Vice President of yes. Academic and Student Affairs at the Connecticut State Colleges and Universities System. And coming up after the break, we just heard endowments at black colleges are just a fraction of endowments at predominantly white higher ed institutions. So what role should philanthropy play? We'll get into that. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Now, today we've been learning about racial inequality in American higher education with my guest, Adam Harris. He's the author of The State Must Provide, Why America's Colleges Have Always Been Unequal and How to Set Them Right. Joining us now on Zoom is Orsella Hughes. She's executive director of the Prosperity Foundation. It's a New Haven organization, a community fund for Connecticut's black residents focused on health, education, and economic development. Orsella, welcome to the show. Thank you so very much, Lucy. It's an honor to be here. So when we think about the funding that your organization provides to black nonprofits, is it primarily higher ed? Uh, no, we, um, um, as you mentioned in the title, we um, fund all three areas, mm-hmm. education, health, and economics. Um, certainly when we receive grant applications, we receive more um, applications for educational um, endeavors. So whether it's higher education or just um, education of self, um, we uh, we group that all together because in order to um, you know, to think about who you're going to be when you are an adult, you have to understand who you are first as a child. And so that comes with educating of, you know, you know who I am, who I am as a black person, who I am um, as I grow older and the, the mark that I want to leave in life. So our education is more than just academic, but it's also awareness of who I am. Well, this hour we've been talking about uh, higher education, and I'm curious your thoughts about the role of philanthropy in um, helping to right these wrongs, Rosella. Yes, I was um, happy to hear uh, when Mr. Harris was talking about, you know, sustained philanthropic giving into higher education. Um, Believe it or not, that is why the Prosperity Foundation actually started. Um, There was a lack of sustainability in the Black communities um, in those three areas, as I mentioned. But since we're talking primarily about education, uh, we see now where the um, um, inadequacies of, of our of storytelling of the Black storytelling in our public schools, how that has impacted, you know, um, people to today. So when we think about, um, you know, the stories of, of, you know, Black giving and Black philanthropy, we don't see it happening in our institutions. And that's why we see more of a lack of accreditation in our schools um, than in PWIs, predominantly white institutions, because we are not even being taught the power of giving and giving back and being philanthropic in our communities. Um, that could be systemic reasons. It could, it's definitely historical context reasons. Um, but whatever it is, the Prosperity Foundation saw that as a need to wake up Black philanthropy um, in Connecticut um, and certainly would like to go national, uh, you know, in the future. But right now it was, it was it was important because Connecticut doesn't even have historically Black colleges or universities. And so we still needed to be able to reach that target audience with the understanding that you can attend even if there's not one in Connecticut. Uh, we mentioned Black Lives Matter earlier in the hour. Um, you know, I'm curious what your thoughts are, Orsella. Do you feel like there's more of uh, awareness of helping uh, you know, Black institutions, Black nonprofits, uh, ways to help communities of color? Or, uh, you know, are people going to be moving past this moment onto to the next uh, uh, movement that catches uh, the news media's attention? Um, the latter. We, we definitely are a society that moves with hot topics. Um, however, the, um, the, the, the need to talk about Black philanthropy is not new 
to the black community. It's just becoming new to um, a lot of other cultures. And when we think about Black Lives Matter and, you know, just just black life in general, um, this is not a new phenomenon. Um, COVID did not start last year with the black community. It started, you know, back in 1619. We were always um, not afforded the opportunity to receive the necessary education, educational or health resources as other communities um, received. So fast forward to the year of George Floyd. Yes, it woke up many people, um, but black people were already in that, you know, quote unquote state of emergency to make um, systemic changes in our community. Um, and we slowly see where even that fire of George Floyd is starting to go away as more hot topics become the issue, which is why we were very intentional when it came to philanthropic um, efforts when people were reaching out to us to make donations. You know, we didn't just accept checks, but we had interviews with donors so that they understood that we were not just looking for people to check the box, the black box off, but we were looking for sustained philanthropic intentions so that you know, the, the, the change can be permanent, endowed in our communities and not just for right now. So how much do you have to give now, Orsella, through the Prosperity <laughs> Foundation? Right. Our grant cycle just closed on September 1st, and we are expecting to put out into the streets of Connecticut $260,000 to um, Black nonprofit organizations that are um, Black-led and Black-serving. And... Um, they, they, their focus areas must be in education, economics, and health. And so we've received all those applications already. And of the 72 applicants, 57% were all for education. Well, excellent. It's good to hear uh, that that uh, money is going out into the communities, Orsella. I wanted to bring Adam Harris back into the conversation because in your book, uh, you know, you do talk about um, the role of philanthropy, but you also argue that the legacy of racism in higher ed could lead institutions that profited off of the enslaved to invest or make reparations to black colleges and universities. Talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, so one of the stories that, that I often point to is incredibly indicative of all of this is right. So Georgetown University, for example, um, in, in the 1830s, they sold um, 272 enslaved people in order to literally sustain their university. Um, the University of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson, um, as he's thinking about, you know, this institution, he, he, he literally says they, they did a report at the University of Virginia a couple of years ago where, where, you know, they say Jefferson couldn't have imagined a University of Virginia without slavery at its root. Um, and this is also at the same time when in these institutions were keeping Black people from enrolling. Right? The University of Mississippi, its faculty in 1870 said, we would rather close than to, and, and we all resign, than to enroll a Black student. Meanwhile, Alcorn State University is, is being legitimately shorted by the state. Right, They're given a guaranteed appropriation of, of $50,000 a year for a decade when they were founded in 1871, as the Redeemers sweep back into public office in the 1874-1875, that appropriations reduced to um, $15,000. Um, a year later, 1876, it's reduced again to $5,500. Meanwhile, the University of Mississippi is, is building its, its base of funding and then receiving you know, this, this lush funding from the, the state government. And so those institutions that were profiting, that were um, profiting from enslavement, profiting during Jim Crow when they were keeping Black students out of their institutions, meanwhile, these institutions institutions that were serving black students were um, 
you know, in some ways languishing, but in some ways, you know, I had these remarkable, fa remarkable faculty members. Um, there is there is some responsibility for those institutions that um, that profited to, to help the institutions that that were struggling and also serve doing the yeoman's work of serving those those black black students. And you also mentioned the state's role, uh, again, that it gave uh, cover for these institutions to discriminate for so long. Uh, there's a place for them in this conversation as well, Adam. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, so these institutions would not have been able to exist in this landscape if not for the state kind of crafting laws, um, defending laws, right? The, the Supreme Court upholding these segregating laws. Um, it, it would not have been possible without that that public infrastructure around it. Um, uh, Heather McGee has, has a thing that she says where public policy created um, some of this racial inequity and only public policy can fix it. So I understand that states need to run a, a balanced budget, but I think they should also be thinking of creative ways in order to help um, help Black students who who in some ways were held back for, for so long, whether that's thinking about equity in the performance-based funding model, whether that is um, thinking about those unrestricted bequests and, and endowments in ways that those can be distributed more equitably um, through through state university systems. Um, I just think that, you know, states and also the federal government need to get creative and, and also understand that the reality that these institutions have been discriminated against um, and, and the students that they attended and therefore had been discriminated against and that needs to be addressed by them. Well, this book gave us a lot to think about, important historical information that people should know. And Adam Harris, we thank you for coming on today to talk about it. Thanks so much for having me. Adam Harris, again, is author of The State Must Provide, Why America's Colleges Have Always Been Unequal and How to Set Them Right. He's also a staff writer with The Atlantic. Also, thanks to Arcella Hughes, Executive Director of the New Haven-based Prosperity Foundation. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Sujata Srinivasan. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can listen to Where We Live anytime. Just download the show on your favorite podcast app. We'll be back tomorrow.